says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. How many of y'all believe that? God is great and greatly to be praised. All right. Man, again, I want to welcome everybody to the brook. You're at the right address. And to everybody who's tuning in online, we want to say welcome. And we eagerly look forward to the day where you can join us in person uh, without all the COVID restrictions, if that's what's holding you back. Uh, We miss your presence, we miss you, and we are looking forward to and we are longing for that day where we can worship our God together uh, face-to-face and in person. Uh, Before I begin, again, I want to say uh, thank you to our leadership. Thankful always for the opportunity to open God's Word and to preach before you, but especially uh, in our first week of this series, uh, Josh has... uh, exhorted us to honor our leaders, and so I want to take this time and honor our leaders. I want to honor our pastor, our pastor Eric, his wife Erica, and all of our elders and their wives for their faithfulness to God's ministry, their faithfulness to God's word, um, and their faithful leadership to us, and I know we've all greatly benefited by their faithfulness. And I want to thank you all for your patience as well. I hope that today, as we work through um, this message, that you will uh, say as, amen as much as you can, because uh, that will help us move a little bit faster. But also, I will covet your prayers as well, because this is a very daunting task and a very uh, heavy passage as well. Today is the final installment of our series um, called Home, and we've been gathering some incredible insights uh, from Scripture on growing with one another as the family of God and how valuable the community of God is, not just for our growth and and maturity of the family of God, but even its impact to the communities around us. Uh, We've we've heard some great preaching from our brothers Josh Phillips and Kerry Weiss, They've done such a phenomenal job. Usually, you know, at the end, you kind of it should be a lob to close out the, the series, but they've done such a phenomenal job that the standard is set really high. I don't know if I can meet that. Um, but in our first week, we were reminded to not give up on one another and being patient and admonishing each other in love and in truth. And last week, received instruction on how we are able to build a stronger community with one another to answer the presence of loneliness in our lives. So again, today we'll be looking at one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. See, if there's anybody who loved the church uh, a little less than Jesus and a little more than Pastor Eric, it would be the Apostle Paul himself. And you can hear and feel his heart for the church and for the people of God. Um, in his letters, and Galatians is no exception, so much so that Galatians is much like a parent that when they see their child fall or something that has been done to their child by somebody, is Paul is like that parent who is quick to pick them up and to care for them and to make sure that they're okay. Galatians carries that type of tone in its makeup. And so today, I hope that by the end of our time together, we would have received an insight, a look into the community. So if you're able to, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, could you open your Bible and meet me in Galatians chapter 5? If you don't have a physical Bible in front of you, unfortunately, we don't have our pew Bibles, but you're more than welcome to open your apps, not Facebook or Instagram, 
Uh, please open your word and follow along with me in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And if you're able to, uh, can you stand with me this morning as we read, uh, we hear the reading of God's word? Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of God. Uh, you may be seated. His life would be changed after uh, that one night. It's the story of this young boy who um, is on this journey of understanding his new identity and purpose. Uh, you see, this one night would change the, the trajectory of his entire life forever. It was on the undergrounds of New York, uh, in this sacred space that he, as he was spending time with his uncle, where this change would happen. Um, from that moment on, nothing would be the same for him. This is the story of Miles Morales in the story Into the Spider-Verse, where we are introduced to this new character um, where he is coming to understand his new identity and purpose as the next Spider-Man. But none of that would be possible if it weren't for the community that helped him to reach that potential. You see, he was surrounded and embraced with the love from his parents. He had the faith in him from his uncle of his potential, and he had the support from other Spider-People in the other universes. You see, we've been introduced to Paul already in the, pre in the past few weeks. We've been introduced to Paul's love for the church. You guys know who this apostle is. This apostle who was previously known as the notorious Saul, who was known for his ravaging of the early church, imprisoning Christians, and even uh, approving of their execution. And it was this Saul, the one who was an enemy of the church of Jesus Christ, who would encounter the very Savior of the church on the road to Damascus. It was that one fateful day when the light shone from the heavens, and he heard a loud voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, it was his life would never be the same. This Saul, the one who was once a ravager of the church, is now the leading missionary taking the gospel to regions where people would come to profess the name of Jesus. This Paul, as he writes this letter to the church in Galatia, the recipients of this letter are much like Miles Morales, a people with untapped potential that are in need of a community to show them what life in Christ truly looks like. See, what we learn through this passage is that life in Christ is a life for one another. A life fully realized is found in Jesus Christ and lives for one another. So we ask this question, what does community life then look like? What does life look like together? What goes on 
in a real community. Paul gives us three insights, three looks into the community life. The first one is a walk in your calling. See, most of the time when we hear that, we often follow up with this question, God, what are you calling me to do with my life? For Paul, his calling was both his identity and his purpose. Paul's calling was found, rooted, and revealed in Jesus Christ. And even for Paul, that was something that was done in community. If you read earlier on in Galatians, you read that upon this life-changing encounter that he had with Jesus on the Damascus Road, he would then go and meet with the apostles. And within that community, they would confirm his calling, his election, and his ministry. And it's important for us to realize and know that sometimes community, when it's done wrong and with the wrong application, can lead to false teaching and a false identity. See, the Galatian people made up, who, who resided in the territory of Galatia, the northern region, a migrant community called the Gauls, and in the southern region, a diverse community, they had given up a lot of their cultural identity markers because of what Jesus Christ has done, and they were vulnerable. They were looking for a place where they can identify and belong. But unfortunately, and the, what the necessity and occasion for writing this letter was the presence of people in the Galatian church who were teaching that circumcision and observance to Jewish law was a necessary part to Christian conversion and in order for them to feel like they belong in the community of Christ. But rather, Paul argues in this letter that by doing so, you're submitting yourselves to a life and returning to a life of oppression and therefore nullifying what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. What he's saying there and throughout the whole letter of Galatians is that justification, your right standing before God, is found in your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by what you do in works of the law. And to this end, Paul would say that what the Galatians have then received from these Judaizers, these people, were a false gospel because they added on to the already completed work of Jesus Christ, to the actual and true gospel message of Jesus Christ. That was then, but that's still something that we can see in our present day and age, that we have received a false gospel. We've heard and received gospel, a gospel message where there has been changes made to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There has been an adding to, and also there has been a taking away from the gospel message. There's the adding to sometimes may have led to people and practices of legalism and prosperity teaching. People don't like to talk about sin, but without the mention of sin and our sinfulness, there is no room and reception of the hope that the gospel message offers to us. And there's also been a history of taking away from the gospel message. You see, in, in the 1800s, missionaries used the Bible to convert and educate slaves here in these yet-to-be United States. However, this edition of the Bible omitted large portions, including the narrative of the exodus of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It also excluded passages such as the passage found in Galatians where it says there's no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female, 
uh, free or slave, for all are one in Christ Jesus. 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament was found to be redacted in this version of the Bible. Today, even, we receive this partial teaching because there seems to be a separation of the go- in the gospel presentation that there are only spiritual implications without physical applications. Jesus forgave sins, but he also loosed chains. He loosed chains of oppression. He loosed chains of falsehoods and false identities. And he called people to live a new life. He, he, he exemplified that in the healing of the sick, in the healing of the broken, in the bringing near of the people who were marginalized outside of community. Jesus was in the business of loosing chains. And we, as people who are witnesses and testimonies of, of Jesus loosing chains on our lives, we as people who have been set free from the grips of sin by the shed blood of Jesus ought to remind one another that we have this identity of freedom found in Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, freedom is a mark of identity and purpose. Read with me in verse 13 where it says, For you were called to freedom, and then he uses this term, brothers. Now it's not just to be an inclusive thing for the men in the church. But it's a, it's a term that's used to encapture brothers and sisters, the family of God. He calls them brothers because freedom is the common thread embedded in the fabric of our DNA. Our, our shared identity is freed ones in Jesus Christ. And it becomes important for us to understand then what freedom in Christ truly means. See, immediately following after this, it says in verse 13, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This word opportunity, when you translate it, it renders this definition of launching points. And I believe it's Paul's intention for the readers to critically think and realize that as recipients of salvation in Jesus, recipients of faith, of, of freedom found in Jesus, we have a choice of what we can do now with the life that we live. You have a choice of living the life that God has purposed for you to live, which includes that freedom and the enjoying of freedom. Or, as Paul would describe, you would live a life that is gratifying to the flesh. The flesh in reference to our sinful, carnal nature of humanity. Paul was teaching about freedom in Christ, and oftentimes he received criticism because it seemed like he was uh, teaching this gospel message of license where you can do whatever you want in Jesus, where you can, you can do whatever you want with your life. But yet there are still people today where in, in the church, the capital C church, who would hold on to even those practices. And what we don't realize is that it becomes dangerous. It's dangerous when you focus on the physical freedom and not the spiritual. And that freedom can lead you down a path that will, that will end up enacting collateral damage on the body of Christ. Meaning that by giving into and abusing those freedom, not only does it hurt ourselves individually, but it hurts the community, the body of Christ. When we're not careful with where our focus is on and how we use our freedom, there's a lot more damage that can be done. It reminds me of a a time that me and my family, we took a trip down to 
a place called Ensenada in Mexico. It was a, there was a beach resort, and along the way, uh, there was a fireworks stand, and we picked up some fireworks, because fireworks are legal there, and we can, you can play with the fireworks. And so it was that night where we all sat around, and you know fireworks, you've seen fireworks. When it's shot up in the air, and it explodes, you see the pretty lights, and how it illuminates the dark sky. And its intention, when you point it in the right direction, you can see the fullness of its beauty. But then not too far from us was another group where they were a little bit more intoxicated, not of the right mind. And I mean, there were times where it was getting a little bit too dangerous. And I remember this one instance where they did not point the firework in the right direction. And what ended up happening was it turned around and landed within their proximity. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. But what they didn't realize but was the misuse of that was actually very damaging to the people around them. See, that's why community is important in our growth and in our maturity of the faith. Because when we live selfishly, we fail to live one for one another. When we live selfishly, when we indulge in these practices of the flesh, you are not walking in your full potential. And you're not walking in the fullness of your identity. And therefore, that stunts my growth. That stunts the growth of your brothers and sisters. Deion Sanders, Hall of Fame football player, shares this story of his life growing up in Fort Myers, Florida, in a uh, magazine interview. And he says of this, of his, of his living experience, uh, talking about other people who were scouted just like him to play college football, other people who had potential to make it far into the NFL and have stellar, successful careers as he did. He would talk about them like this. He explains, I call them Idas. If I'd have done this, I'd be making three million today. If I'd have practiced a little harder, I'd be a superstar. He says this, they were as fast as me when they were kids, but instead of working for their dreams, they chose to indulge themselves in a different kind of lifestyle. When I was young, I had practice. My friends who didn't didn't, went straight to the streets and never left. And he says this, that moment after school is the moment we need to grab. We don't need any more Ida's. I like the way that one commentator puts it. He says that the liberty of the gospel is not to be exercised in isolated independence. See, the reason why we need community is because it keeps us accountable. And it also allows us to truly enjoy freedom in Christ in the way that it's designed to be. So there's two trajectories that Paul talks about when talking about freedom in Christ. The first trajectory is this life according to the flesh. But the second trajectory, but also the second insight of the look into the community, after looking at a walking in your calling, the second one is serving in love. I like the way that one commentator says it this way, love is both the means and the motivation of service to one another. And it's interesting that Paul would use this particular word to describe service in the Greek that shares the same root as the word slave. It's not as if we're indebted to one another that we ought to give ourselves to another in servitude. No, but perhaps 
Paul is saying it this way, that through love serve one another because love is the very basic and the very minimum that you and I deserve. See, Paul says it like this in verse 14, that through love you serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon reading these words, it ought to trigger in your mind Jesus' encounter with the, the young lawyer in Luke chapter 10. It says one day that Jesus was teaching and a ruler and a young lawyer stood up to test Jesus, asking him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds back with this question, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? To which the lawyer replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responding him, saying, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. And this is where the tension of that encounter with Jesus comes out of. It says, But the lawyer then desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? We don't want to be, but so often we ourselves are that very lawyer. At times trying to justify ourselves before the eyes of God. And we ask the very same question that the lawyer asked, And who is my neighbor? See, the call to love is not to be discriminatory on who the person you love. Whenever we ask this question, we sow the same sin of partiality enacted by the rich man uh, between him and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And the same sin of partiality that James, the brother of Jesus, condemns in James chapter 2. When we feel the need to immediately push back against the phrase, Black Lives Matter, we are trying to justify ourselves by asking the very question, and who is my neighbor? When we come across headlines... And when we read about the allegation of women wrongfully being victims of non-consistent consented hysterectomies and we immediately dismiss it rather than showing compassion, we are trying to justify ourselves by asking, and who is my neighbor? When we see the marginalized, the, the vulnerable migrants in our community, when we see the homeless, when we see unequal structures in our city and in the law, when we see wrongful incarcerations, we often justify ourselves in our response by asking this question, and who is my neighbor? The irony here is that Paul uses actually the very words of the law that he claims to has, who have enslaved us to our sin to show that in actuality our love towards one another fulfills the entirety of the law. The fulfillment here comes from the actualization that in acting out our love towards one another, we are brought into the realization of the heart of God. Meaning that we come to understand the fullness of the word of God and the heart of God when we love one another. I like the way that John Calvin actually says it this way. He says, God, tests, God wants to test our love of him by the love of our neighbor that he commends to us. Love is called the fulfilling of the law because it is the, it is the proof of worship to God. The love of God cannot be separated from the love of other people. The word neighbor covers every living person. 
We are joined by a common nature. The image of God ought to be an especially sacred bond of union. No distinction is made between friend and foe, for the wickedness of people cannot annul the right of nature. Our love towards one another, in fact, demonstrates our love and devotion to our God and our King. I understand that it's made known in Scripture at times that when, when, it's, when it's referred to as love one another, sometimes we're quick to understand that this means the, the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet I would argue that we ought not to stop merely at loving the community of believers, but we ought to extend that love even to our enemies because that's what Christ has done for us. See, Jesus says it in this way in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, how are people to know that we are loved ones or they're able to know our loves if we're not showing them love, if we're not going out and exemplifying that love? How will people be able to see the love of God if we are not going out into them to show them that very love of God? We cannot show partiality and be selective on who we love or don't love because what if Jesus showed that same partiality? What if when Jesus, on the night before he died, in his prayer with with God saying, God, do I really have to die for this person? Do I really have to die for him, for her? Because we don't see eye to eye politically. We don't see eye to eye economically, socially, theologically. We cannot show partiality because Jesus, on his cross, on his, it, through his sacrifice, did not show partiality to us. And so we receive insight into the community, a community who walks in their calling, in the freedom of Jesus Christ. A community who serves one another as it fulfills the word of God. But also, thirdly and lastly, building up. In unity, a community that builds up in unity. Paul mentions in verse 15, it says this, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, the fact that Paul mentions this suggests that there may have been some divisiveness within the church. There may have been some division and some, some uh, dissension that was going on amongst the people of God. And this was a bother to Paul because Paul's heart for the church was unity. Unity under the umbrella of the work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Paul uses this ancient metaphoric language here to draw an example of the daily struggle of wild animals. This imagery was used to illustrate how ugly the carnage that may become of situations and relationships if we don't be careful about our disagreements. The fact that Paul actually mentions and suggests this shows that it might have been present in the church. I mean, it's not wrong that we don't see eye to eye on things. It's not wrong that we're entitled to our own opinions. But Paul warns us because, though, because words and actions can lead us to being consumed by one another, so much so that it leads us to tearing each other down. I mean, it's one thing to disagree and debate on Facebook, but we ought to look out that we're not attacking each other and attacking each other's character. Because as one 21st century church theologian would say, there's life and death in the power of the post. 
I mean, we can debate with one another that the White Sox are the best Chicago baseball team. But we should be leery of personal attacks because of this truth. I mean, we ought to be very different from culture. We ought to be very different from culture because just because we disagree doesn't mean it gives us warrant to cancel each other out because Jesus did not cancel us. See, the church should be a place where we don't, we can not view things the same way, but at the end of the day, we can still fellowship because you and I are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Disagreements and dissension are particularly dangerous because of two things. One, it gives into the work of Satan. Satan comes to seek, kill, and destroy. I like the way that Rudolf Walter, one of the reformers, says it this way. He says, the most violent hatreds of all are those that arise from disagreements about doctrine and religion. Their natural author is Satan who was a murderer from the beginning and who loves to kill people but cannot do so unless he stirs up his own people, whom he has given over to false doctrines and superstitions, to rage against teachers of the truth and arms them to kill them. I mean, we can discuss and debate about theology and about concepts, but when we get so caught up in that, what we, don't re- what we ought to be leery of and be wary of is that it can lead us to destruction, to dismantling, to to breaking down of the church. And the second thing is that we undo everything that Jesus Christ has done. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that the unifying work of Christ is not only one that we have been reconciled vertically with God, but it's that we have been reconciled with one another. That Christ has torn down the wall of hostility and brought, that, that has brought enmity between you and me that we're now able to fellowship together because of the blood of Jesus. So when we build up walls that Christ has torn down, we're undoing everything that Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. And sometimes what those, law, those walls honestly look like are political. They're social, economic. Building up in unity looks like truthing to one another, being patient with one another. Not allowing the sun to go down on our anger towards one another. Even towards those whom we might have beef with. Leading us to bury the hatchet. See, building up in unity doesn't allow us the room to watch our brothers and sisters suffer and disconnect themselves from the body of Christ. So the implication of that is you can't double tap or scroll past a sister or brother who is struggling in their walk with Jesus. That's why the community is so important. That's why the the community is so necessary. I'll close with this one final point. And it's it's a charge for the church. It's an opportunity for us to be of community of Jesus Christ in the world today. See, written along the margins of a newspaper while imprisoned in a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, directed in response to the church leaders of the day, the renowned Baptist preacher, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in Pauline fashion, pens this letter whose words reverberate and continue to echo in our present day and age. And this is what he says. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early, church, when the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. 
In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structures got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of peace, outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than men. They were small in number, but big in commitments. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils. Things are different now. The contemporary church is often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is instead consoled by the church's silence and often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20 and the 21st century. I am meeting young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. If there's no words that ring truer today, I don't know what is. See, the world around us, people, our neighbors that we live with, they're looking for a place to belong, a tangible example of what it looks like to be at unity, to be at peace, to be in community. And this is an opportunity for the church then to step in and say, we can offer you the community that you long for. People outside of the church, they're tired of Facebook debates as much as you are. They're tired of, of all the division that's happening around us. They're exhausted. And we have an opportunity, this is an opportune moment to be a witness of what a home looks like, where people are able to live together in patience, in truth, and in love. It's a place where the kingdom of God can be something that's not just taught and teached on and talked about, but something that we can live out and usher in. And I know it's a daunting task. It's a daunting, it's a high calling. It may be difficult at times. But what the word of God says is that we have been empowered with the spirit of God that enables us, that gives us power, that gives us strength, that gives us courage and boldness to be able to go out. And this is why the community is important because when we lean in on each other, we remind each other that we have this power. The same power that conquered the grave is the same power that is within you. And the only way we can experience this, the only way we can experience true peace, true hope, true unity, is in Jesus. The world is looking for peace where there is no peace. The, lo the world is looking for hope where there is no hope. The world is looking for unity where there is no unity offered. But what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary is that he, wore, he, he tore down those walls not just with God, but with one another. And he allowed us to have peace. He, he, he offers to us hope, and he offers for us unity. And so if you're here this morning, you have yet to put your hope and your trust in Jesus. You're looking around for a place to belong. You're looking for hope. You have no place to look further than the gospel message of Jesus.
He is the hope that the world is looking for. He is the hope of peace. He is the hope of love, and he is the hope of truth. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close in prayer? God, as we close this series on home, doing life together, growing with one another, God, I understand that there are many hesitancies that keep us from coming together, whether it's due to this pandemic or even giving into the lies of Satan. But Lord, I pray that we as a church may take up the call to action, to be that place of hope, to be that place of love, to be that place of unity, where people who have been broken and wounded by the church can come and feel cared for. God, people who have been struggling in sin can come and be restored. Lord, if there's any one of us in here or online who's been longing to have a relationship with you, God, we thank you that today is their day. We thank you, Lord God, that your salvation is made readily available for them. That all we have to do is put our faith and our hope in Jesus and what he's done for, on the cro- for us on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago that at the shedding of his blood that our sins have been paid for and the penalty of our sins been satisfied God we ask for your forgiveness in ways that we failed as the church in ways that we failed of being your hands and feet not just to one another but to the community around us. But we pray, Lord God, that as your your mercies are new every morning, God, that we may find our strength in you. God, that we may now seek out opportunities, gospel opportunities, to be the real community that you called us to be. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's our prayer, church, right? That our hearts would really be that place where God can work in and through us. So we go out this week, keep that posture of prayer. Keep that longing where it's like, man, God, I, I need you. I know I need, I need him. I feel him just poking my heart, just saying, give me all that you are. So we're going to lean in him and say, God, have, have your way with us. Before, before we dismiss today, I want to pray in a moment and then uh, dismiss us. But just a reminder that Pastor Jeremy is outside uh, selling those emotionally healthy relation books for our coursework for us to grow deeper together, real community, starting a week, um, uh, in about a week and a half. So, man, I'm super excited about that. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the beautiful reminder we are told today, Lord, of how in Christ we are free to do good. We are free to love. We are free to serve, God. We're free to live out this identity as men and women purchased by the blood of Jesus. So, Lord, we, we just ask for the grace and strength empowered by your spirit to live this out. Be glorified in us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. God bless you, church family. We will see you next week to celebrate our seven-year anniversary. 
And so we look forward to bring someone with you, bring a family member, a friend, a neighbor, and let's celebrate together. You are dismissed. We'll see you all outside.